I, can I say something? Louis? Of course, please. What I, you've read John Bradley's was Killaloo, a pre-Norman borough. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So he says like the apron of this site, you know, stretches over Bridge Street and down, uh, John Street and Bridge Street. And so was, do you think this was an early monastic site here? This is the third church, supposedly, on the site. It depends. It depends what you mean by early, but obviously with a link to Flanon yeah, as well. Yeah, with the holy well we have here. We have a mill. You talked of a horizontal mill. Mm, what mm. is a horizontal mill? So that so a horizontal mill is a is a is a particular type of technology okay. which is horizontal <laughs> yeah, across on, yeah. on on a river. Uh -huh. And generally um, so that our first the first um, um, defined usage of it seems to be at Nendrum which is dated from about the, I think, 650s thereabouts through carbon testing. Okay. And it is copied on an earlier Roman type of, of mill. Yeah. Um, but we do find these in various monastic sites. Now, because there's a mill here, certainly can have medieval origins, whether that's early medieval is something different. The, the, manor, the manor mill, the mill stream up there, not yeah. the, mill, the mill on the river. But no, the I, yeah, yeah. And so that is all in this boundary, in this... Yeah. In this this enclosure is such, and it is circular. You know, yeah, so, circular. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and obviously this being sort of the nerve center of the Delgash, yeah. particularly in the 11th and, ah. and, and, and 10th century, and with the earlier St. Flanon as well, mm. and Flanon's link, which is an ancestral link to the Ivrian, yes. to, to, yes. the, to the primary family of the Delgash, yes. yeah. possibly would, would indicate that there was an earlier site here as well. That's what we're so, I'm so excited about. You know, and they, they talk of a Norman church, the St. John's Abbey, what John Street is named after. This is called the Abbey area as such. So was there an, another church? We know there was a church and they said it was Norman in construction. In, in the land north of the well there. So just again in this circular apron. Yeah, so, so, so generally, um, I suppose the historical uh, view would be the Norman um, imprint in County Clare is fairly um, light. Yes. Because obviously the Normans tried to sub-infuse Tradri, that area between Bunrati and Quinn. Okay. And of course, obviously Quinn being destroyed in circa 1285 as per the Cachram Hurley text, which talks about the, that destruction. Okay and then the Normans being pushed out in 1318 after the Battle of Dysart O'D. Yeah. It seems apparent to me that the Norman settlement uh, here in Killaloo was quite fleeting, maybe for a century or thereabouts. Yeah. Again, you know, this, this is an O'Brien centre, yeah. and then after the Normans are pushed out of Toman, the O'Briens yeah. consolidate their influence, although the interesting story with that is that, in fact, it's the McNamaras who really benefit. So after O'Briens are pushed pushed out. It's the McNamara's of Clan Cullen, which is their lordship in East Clare, okay. and they're responsible for erecting about 60 tower houses uh, throughout the 15th century. Uh, so it's really the McNamara's also who are filling that vacuum after the Normans come out. Okay. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like, it's so, you, you want to kind of dig. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and to, your, to your earlier point about um, early monastic sites, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember. There's definitely, I think, 11th, maybe 10th century references to the church here. Yes. We know through the excavations of Inish Keltra uh, that were done back in the 70s and 80s um, that there's a, there's obviously was a church site there very early, um, 7th century, an, an earthen church, which, yes, I, which, I, had yes. which I had referred yes. to. Uh, but obviously there were other earlier churches all throughout okay. County Clare. Well, we had Fires Island, um, St. Louis Oratory further yeah, down. Yeah, that's and right. And he, yeah. he was a disciple of Flannery. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, so yes. It is a, it's, we're in a, we're in a beautiful, 
really rich area. The, the only thing I'll just say on that yeah. um, is County Clare is really well serviced in this regard yeah. um, in terms of both the historical um, source material, mm -hmm. which refers to County Clare, mm -hmm. the prevalence of saints, mm -hmm. you know, Corkabashkin, you know, the, um, is you know, Southwest Clare, the, the patron of Corkabashkin, of course, is St. Shanan or St. Senan. The real strength in local sta saints, I referred to um, St. Um, Macrehe um, of, of Kilmacrehe up in Nizkana. Uh, there is also a Macrehe connection with Inish culture as well. So quite a lot of, or quite a few of the saints in uh, County Clare, uh, their lives, the, the biographies of these saints survive. Yeah. So we do have um, quite a lot of information as to what um, what those monastic sites were like, the lives of the saints, etc., in, in, in the Clare experience, and not least, of course, with archaeology, which you mentioned earlier as well. Yes, we love you. Sorry, Welcome. you have a question there? Yeah, this may be a very naive question. I'm, I'm uh, uh, intrigued by this name, Makantagart, the son of the priest. Yeah, Sagat, yeah. Oscar. Yeah. What exactly did Mak mean? And you also used the term ecclesiastical families. Yes. Uh, yeah, good, good question. Good question. Like, there's a lot. Sorry, there's a lot to go to go into that. Um, I published a book in 2014. This one here, exactly clerical and learned lineages of County Clare. So this is exactly to that point. So Saget Oskwelga is is priest. Makan um, um son of the priest. Mak being son, an of the priest. Um, and this is this is quite uh, well known fact. Um, even though we have the Gregorian reforms and the sort of the theoretical um, imposition of, of, of celibacy on all um, clerics up until that point, it was only adhered to generally by, by monastics. After the 12th century, this was supposedly to, um, celibacy was, was supposedly uh, imposed on parish clergy. We generally see and the Irish not following that. And part of that reason is because of the society. So you've got to look at Irish society in this period, which is very much lineage-based. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of the church lands were vested, originally were vested, not just in the church itself, but also in the wider collective ownership of a lineage. Maybe you, you could call it a clan, but lineage is probably more accurate. And so in order for a lineage to uh, perpetuate themselves, they wouldn't be celibate. And so what you have generally is the Irish ignoring um, uh, the decrees on, on celibacy, so much so that by the 15th century, and that's when we really have a good picture of this, and my book looks at this, on the papal letters, these are petitions going to Rome by the um, various dioceses, petitioning to Rome uh, for, for clerics, saying, you know, I am the son of a priest, petitioning for dispensation of that defect, and then for that uh, cleric himself to then take on a benefice or to be appointed to a church. But once you look at it a little bit more detailed, often what we, you're really seeing is a stratagem that in fact that priest, that, that, that young priest who is a son of a priest, actually it's his father who is retiring from the benefice and the son then essentially is seeking Rome's approval for him to then go into the benefice himself. And we see this um, consistently. There's some families we see over... Um, over many centuries, uh, in fact, yeah, over many centuries of, of doing this. So the McGraths at Clare Abbey is just one such example. And then we also have hereditary um, administrators of church lands um, who were quasi-clerics. They probably took minor orders 
and this is the Erknox that I mentioned earlier, and the Korbs, Korb meaning an heir of a monastic site, and Erknox being sort of an overseer or a steward of church lands, and there's various examples of those also in, in, in County Clare. And these families, those families, because they were involved in church administration, also tended to supply clergy to the church, to local benefices. And again, we see this in the 15th century through these papal registers. But indeed, the point um, clerical celibacy really didn't um, uh, stop or, or uh, tighten up until um, the Counter-Reformation, until the, the Council of Trent in the 16th century. So once we start to see the um, Protestant Reformation um, manifest itself in County Clare in about the 1570s, thereabouts, properly, from that point onwards, you have more Catholic priests being trained on the continent and coming back imbued with, um, uh, imbued with the Counter-Reformation counter approach. Um, it's from that point that you start to see celibacy actually being adhered to by parish clergy. Up until that point, um, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. And it's as much practical as anything that they lived a life that they might have needed to yeah, I, I think, like I said, it's more because um, it's a kin-based system, a lineage-based system. So um, celibacy was seen as fine for, for monastics and, 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 the, and the usual default position. For, for parish clergy, it wasn't done in the pre-12th century. The Irish continued not doing it. It's more probably akin to perhaps the Orthodox Church that you would have today, whereby the sort of upper strata of clergy, such as the bishops, and the monastics are celibate, but the, the, the parish clergy or parish priest uh, is married. And in fact, there is, um, I can't remember the reference quite off the top of my head at the moment, but in my book, I think it's to do with Kiladaisart. There, the parish there, there was a reference of a, of a cleric who's petitioning Rome as a married priest for dispensation. Now that's very unusual. I assume that means married under secular law, under Irish Brehan law. Um, but generally you do, you do certainly get a flurry of petitions to the papal cura in the 15th century looking for these um, um, dispensations. Please. I just as an aside, I'm Katrina Vacker and I live in Rossgrave and we live in Monensia up in Rossgrave. Monensia, yeah, I know it all very well, beautiful. Yeah. And uh, I think the in addition to some of them, the Vapor clan or the Vapor clan were sent out to only the Incha so they wouldn't get up to any mischief. And uh, the ladies I lived out there were the ladies were allowed. <laughs> so boring about the ladies. Apparently, I wasn't around. Where was that fashion? Sorry? Where was that fashion? Ah, this is. Um, I don't I know, there's some debate among scholars as to where it is. It's a debate I won't go into tonight. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Nobody knows for, sh for sure. There are, s there are certain contending sites. But yeah. That's a good question. My understanding is possibly not. And of course, the other synod that I didn't mention here is 1172, the Synod of Cashel, which is a whole different beast in itself because obviously 1172, this synod happens 
And so the culmination of those synods, that's a century of synods, and then 1172 was held in Cashel, but it's presided over by, by the Normans who are, who are here. And that has a completely different um, aspect to it than the earlier ones. But I don't believe the earlier ones were necessarily held at Rathbrazel itself. It would make sense they're possibly held in, in fact, in different locations. Please. Sorry. Uh, the, uh, you mentioned the earlier uh, monastic Christian settlements uh, relied a lot on a royal uh, patronage and they were heavily linked with the kingship hmm. of, of certain areas. As well as that, um, Latin was the language of the, the, uh, the Christian uh, settlers. And, and tied in with that idea of all the, the teaching and the and the um, the, the scriptorium to say. I suppose my question following that was Christianity at that time just the release? And if so, I mean, when did it spread out to the common people in Ireland? It's a great question, and I, I think it's something scholars have been toing and froing on this question for some time and there's no scholarly consensus on it. Um, recently I heard from, I think it was Tomás O'Carragon, the archeologist, that there's about between four to 5,000 church sites in Ireland. That's extraordinary. Ireland, if I remember correctly what he said, is either the most densely concentrated um, um, of church sites in Western Europe, either the most or one of the most. Either way, that says something about um, the spread of the church. But the question is, who was going into these churches? These, some of these are very, very small. So if you go to some of these um, uh, ruined sites, the church is tiny, a single-celled church. Temple Cronan is a good example in the Burren, actually. It's probably late 11th century, early 12th century, but there'll be, the early churches would be something like that, but maybe smaller. So how many people can you fit inside a church? And is this um, um, the church um, sort of doing its pastoral duties to the wider um, society, or is it, as you um, mentioned there, or is it to the sort of the elite strata? The idea of a proprietary church is a church essentially almost like a chapel at ease for, a, for an important family. And it seems as though the early Irish church in the first couple of centuries was probably proprietorial. So myself, I would probably lean on the view that it was probably for the elite. Um, but there is certainly um, uh, evidence later on that we have the church, the church's mission, you know, th th there is that pastoral care to a wider group of people. There is also, of course, on, some, uh, on many of these larger monastic estates, a lot of people working. These are the manig, or the sort of monastic workers. Some were, um, uh, most were laymen, but, but some of them were quasi-clerics. Um, so there's one school of thought which is, will they sort of receive pastoral care from the monastery, but people beyond the, the tarmen, the, the, the sanctuary lands did not, or if they did, it was very haphazard. Um, that's one possibility in the early period, and then over time, Christianization for the masses then spread it out. But we don't really have a clear sense of that. I think that was one of the driving um, tenets behind the 12th century reform, okay, the Gregorian reforms, which wasn't, um, this wasn't established in Ireland, this was something that was coming out of Rome and then and, 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 and spreading through Europe. But that idea of 
of, 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 of ensuring that the church has a greater reach to the ordinary people. So therefore, that manifests itself in the erection of parishes and dioceses, which didn't exist in that same structure as, as before. So really, it's, it's a continuum over time. Garod, yeah. Um, it wasn't Roman law I mentioned, it was um, church law, canon law, yes. So, so um, the Irish were very, very early in codifying, actually, the Collectio Canorum Hibernensis, which is a collection of canon law, Irish canon law, which I believe was um, written in, um, uh, in, in, in either Munster or Leinster um, in perhaps the late 7th century, uh, early 8th century was an extraordinary um, achievement that sort of this huge corpus of canon law was actually written in, in, in Ireland, not, you know, not in the center of the continent or, or some other sort of really, um, place that you'd expect it to be a center of Christianity in itself. There are, um, in, in Irish um, Brehan law, or the Shanachas Ma, for example, which there is a huge amount of, um, of writings and the Irish were very prolific in terms of the secular law, there are references um, which clearly show that it was Christianized, right? So clearly the secular Irish lawyers are looking to canon law for specific examples. So there is an interplay between the two. It's quite complex of actually ascertaining how that interplay really manifested itself. And, um, and also when scholars look at this period, we tend to, today I've talked about six centuries, right? Um, we tend to think that things stay the same over those six centuries, you know. Um, when Irish secular law was written down in the Shanachasmar and other types of legal texts, four or five centuries later, we're talking about the 12th, 13th century, did it sort of manifest itself in the same way? Probably not, but, we, but through lack of evidence, we, we don't know. Um, but yeah, certainly when, when the secular law, law was written, there was a cognizance of canon law. Um, in terms of canon law itself, from what I recall when I was reading the Collectio Canorum Hibernensis, there is not that going back to secular law because canon law sees itself as, as quite separate. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers your, your question. I, I, sh I should also say, sorry, just on that point, if you look at the later medieval schools of, of law, such as the um, such as Caramagnacton um, in the in the Burren, the O'Davran Law School, they are copying um, ecclesiastical or canon law and secular law. So by the later period, by the later medieval period, there is, I suppose, an understanding of of, of both these different streams of law, and they're both being um, copied, um, glossed over, or glossed by Irish Irish scholars at that at that period. We have a question here. Uh, my question is, is related to the scribes and work uh, in the scriptorium. Mm. Um, uh, I was very, I was very surprised to hear uh, that uh, about the variety of writing that they did there. I thought it was uh, there were only 
doing copies of the Gospels. Mm. And I heard that I was reading something last night which indicated, uh, which surprised me uh, because it was um, a reference to the volume of material that came out and came out of, the, of these places. And uh, I'm wondering, consi considering those, uh, those two things, the variety and the volume, was there a huge demand for it and was there a market for it or what? And also, where did they source the, uh, was it difficult to get the originals from which they copied the Gospels or where did they go? Yeah, it's, great. it's a great question actually. So you're absolutely right. Um, the literary produce of the monastic, script, monastic scriptoria, both in Ireland and also with the Irish on the continent, let's not forget those who established monasteries. I think it's maybe 30 monasteries or thereabouts the Irish established on the continent, was really remarkable. And that, that, if there's one thing to take away from this talk today is, is that. And, and correctly, also the, um, um, the legacy of that is extremely diverse. So much so that a lot of this, a lot of what I mentioned today, the Toimbukulna, you know, the cattle raid of Cooley is a good example. That survives in a, I think it's a, maybe a late 11th century or early 12th century compilation, which was done in a monastic milieu. You know, the, the, we know from the language that's much older because they were copying it down in the 12th century, but they were using old Irish, they were copying it. But in the 12th century, by that stage, it's, it's, it's Middle Irish and the beginnings of early modern Irish, actually. So um, you sort of see with a lot of the uh, survival from the, from the scriptoria, it's, it, it's that 12th century sort of copying of those which at that period was antiquarian writings, very old writings, and it seems, just slightly off your point, but I was just going to say, it, that period occurred at the time of the Gregorian reforms. It's almost like Irish churchmen knew the writing was on the wall. And so they decided to collect all, all of these old stories, the Toyn Bokulna, um, um, Lara Gawal, um, Gawala Erin, the Book of Taking of Ireland, and, and, and other such uh, important texts, and to to, and essentially to preserve them. So we have a lot of these in the book of Leinster, for example. Um, in terms of what audience these were for, um, if they were liturgical or religious texts, then obviously it's other monasteries. Um, we find um, uh, texts circulating amongst the parousia, or these kind of confederation of monasteries. Um, I mentioned earlier Adolf Nahn, the ninth abbot of Iona, <coughs> who wrote The Life of Columba. And he also wrote a book called De Locus Sancti, which, which is on holy places. And that was his um, um, description of the Holy Land. So essentially a French bishop coming back from the Holy Land was shipwrecked somewhere near Iona and had this and stayed at the, at the monastery of Iona for about six months. And Adolf Nahn writes down this man's recollections of Palestine, of Jerusalem, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre located vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, um, uh, Golgotha and, 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 and other such places mentioned in the, in the Bible. And that surely um, was for, the, the audience was for other, mon other monastics. Um, Adolf Nahn wrote, like I mentioned, the uh, life of, um, of, of St. Columba, the life of Columkilla. And that would have been for, at that stage, that growing parousia of monasteries that were coming under the headship of Iona. So it was for other daughter monasteries. So you had sort of that internal demand for these types of texts. It's a bit more difficult though to, to identify what were, what, who, were, who were the audiences for the secular literature. 
like I mentioned, Toynbul Kulna and these types of, of stories, and there's many of them. Um, those, and most of them date from the 12th century in terms of being written down. They're much more ancient stories. Um, that seemed to be motivated by an antiquarian desire just to preserve this material. As, as I said, the Irish monastics saw the writing on the wall. Um, and once a lot of those monasteries were then refounded under the Augustinian or Cistercian rule, they tended to therefore focus just on Latin texts. And this sort of creative approach to Irish texts, texts Osquelga, um, tends to have fallen away somewhat. It came back a bit later with the Augustinians, but not perhaps with the same vigor as, as it had been uh, pursued in the pre-12th century Irish um, monastic scriptorium. Yeah. Thanks for the question. And talking about monastic texts, we have Jonathan McGowan, or Jonathan McGowan, I will say his name was Jonathan McGowan, and Sean McGowan in English, and he's written a book on the public text. In the Luke, the Luke trend now, it's starting to trend. Luke. So, <laughs> we have John McGowns here on the 5th of July as part of the Labour Party. So, okay, and thank you all for coming. Our donation box, with every other one goes towards the team for the 15th of the next Okay, thank you very much, and thank you. Thanks.